Hey there, Multi-Amory listeners. It's Dedeker, and I just want to announce that I just did a big update to my online course, Building a Solid Foundation for Non-Monogamy. I've added more exercises, more journal prompts, and more discussion questions to tackle with a partner. And I'm also running a summer sale where you can access the course for a discount. So for a little bit of backstory, last year I launched this online course. I created it because over my many, many years of working with clients, I noticed this pattern where Many people would come to me already knowledgeable about non-monogamy. They've listened to countless multi-amory episodes, they've devoured all the books, they follow all the Instagram and TikTok meme accounts, and yet they still hit these snags in their relationships. They still feel misunderstood by their partners. So I thought it was about time to bring some evidence-based and research-backed practices into the mix to help people create a solid starting ground for their relationship as they journey into non-monogamy. So if you head over to dedekerwinston.com slash course, you can preview the intro to the course and you can see if this is a right fit for you. Go to dedekerwinston.com slash course and use promo code MULTI20 at checkout to get a 20% discount. If you are a Multi-Amory Patreon subscriber, you will get a special code for a bigger discount. So go to patreon.com slash multi-amory to get that discount code. And remember, if you are in financial need, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly at dedeker at multiamory.com and you can literally name your price. I'm serious. You can name your price at a dollar and you don't even have to give me a reason why. In fact, I'd prefer you didn't even give me a reason why because we really believe in how important it is that there's an abundance of relationship resources that are available and accessible. Again, go to dedekerwinston.com slash course, promo code multi20, or reach out to me directly at dedeker at multiamory.com and name your price. I think that closure, especially when it comes to relationships ending, means I need to get something from the other person so that I can feel good about the ending of this and I can feel satisfied about the ending of this. And I don't know, people sometimes think they like have a right to some kind of closure and we really don't in life, in relationships, in death and grief and whatever, like we don't really have a right to this. And often it's really disempowering to put yourself in a position where it's like, I need to get something from this other person. This other person who may feel completely differently about the relationship or about the breakup may have completely different values, maybe was directly harmful to you potentially. And so it's always felt a little backwards to me to be like, oh, I need to put it on them to like make me feel good about the ending of this. But again, we get into cocaine withdrawal brain and it all seems like it just makes sense. If I can just get a hit from this person, that's going to be the thing that's going to make it feel good. But it's not. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about heartbreak, breakups, and recovery. There's a real mix of helpful and 
very unhelpful advice out there in the world for dealing with breakups or loss or heartbreaks, things like that. And so today we're going to be looking at some research about breakups and heartbreak, sharing some of our personal experiences with it, and looking at some suggestions for healthy recovery strategies. Wow. Okay. Well, this is probably an episode that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. But I do have to ask, why now? Why are we doing it right at this particular moment in time? Perhaps, Dedeker, you can answer that question. Well, Emily, I'm so glad you asked. Because the fact of the matter is, is that I was broken up with the first week of January of this year. Gosh, now, it was that long ago now? Yes. That's amazing. I feel like it happened like yesterday. Well, now I know what you may be thinking, and all our listeners out there may be thinking. What? Dedeker Winston? The charming, talented, beautiful, beautiful intelligent I agree. author and co-host of this podcast? <laughs> Somebody broke up with her? And again, thank you so much for making that observation. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's not actually how I feel about myself, but I figure it's maybe easier to lean in that direction rather than the opposite direction where it's easy to go after a breakup, which is, oh, I'm terrible and I'm unlovable and no one will ever love me again. And this was all my fault. And oh, gosh, why didn't I do anything differently? I figure maybe easier to lean into. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How could this yeah. have happened to me? I'm just so perfect. Yeah. There you I think go. These are both relatable extremes to, to many true. people. Yeah. Self included after breakups. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So I'm right in the thick of breakup recovery. Right. And I know that. I found a lot of really amazing resources. I, I do think that, I mean, I've had a lot of breakups in my life, but I do think that where I'm at now has probably been the one I've been the most equipped for mm -hmm. as much as it has sucked. But I feel like I've just had a lot of tools under my belt, have had access to a great support network, access to a lot of great resources. And so I want to pay it forward, you know, to all of you out there who may be also in the thick of this or may experience this. Um, some disclaimers as we get into this. We have a whole thing on the show, I think, about trying our best to protect people's privacy. So I'm not going to use this show or this episode as an opportunity to gossip about my ex or gossip about what happened in the relationship. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's okay. If you really like, if you really, really want access to that gossip, your choice is become one of the hosts of the show because and then we talk about it off the air. That's pretty much the only way. I, I really don't ever want to set up an expectation that if someone is dating me or connected to me in any way, that automatically means the good, the bad, the ugly is going to end up recorded and mm -hmm. on the show. So mm -hmm. I may end up talking about stuff from this relationship in the future. I'll probably do the same treatment that I've done with other exes when I talk about them on the show, which is to use a pseudonym to talk about things in a very anonymous way so that I'm not necessarily airing somebody's dirty laundry directly. So um, if you love dirty laundry, I'm sorry, this is not the episode for that. But if you love recovering from a heartbreak, this is the episode for you. Yay. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. So can so I, can I, yeah, let's, yeah let's just start off with a little bit of riffing. I'm curious to hear from the two of you. How have y'all gotten over breakups in the past? Oof. God. By talking to everyone about it ever mm. for a long period of time until my mother mm -hmm. inevitably is like, you need to stop talking about it. And she's right. 
generally. It's funny because ever since you shared that story with me through this whole process, your mom's voice has been in my head. I'm not surprised. Sometimes, sometimes whispering <laughs> to me. <laughs> Sherry sometimes whispers to me, you got to stop talking about this. You got to move on. You got to get it together. Yeah, get your shit together. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. No, no. I mean, it's fine. But I, I guess there is maybe something to be said that often you know, any sort of trauma that you go through, it's good to talk about. Um, but sometimes it's best to talk about with a licensed professional or somebody, you know, a counselor or someone along those lines, if you can, because they are being paid to hear your grievances and your friends and family most likely are not. Not that I am saying that about you, Dedeker, because I, I heard a lot, but not like probably as much as the person who lives with you. Oh, Jace heard much. Um, but we'll yes. talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back to my last breakup, which was in the, I guess, the September or so before the pandemic. So like September of 2019. And I actually think like one of my healthier times of of coping with a breakup and being sad about that. And what I mean by that is that I didn't try to just like do something to not feel it, Hmm. right? Like there's that temptation to sort of numb out somehow, whether that's like immediately going on a bunch of new dates, whether it's, you know, just like really get like, I don't know, getting into some new hobby or like doing something or just like drinking a lot or doing drugs or like whatever. And I felt like in this case, it partly just worked out that way where I happened to be in Japan by myself for a month. And so I had a lot of time to just kind of sit in that cove and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that ultimately that was good and probably a healthier way to deal with it than I have with some breakups in the past, which is where I'm more like trying to seek that approval or validation to to prove to myself that I'm desirable or, or something like that. Yeah. So both of you touched on things that is reflected in the research on heartbreak and breakup recovery, but we'll dive into that a little bit later. So the way I've ordered this episode is kind of almost like the arc of my own recovery hmm. journey and what I went through and kind of the tools that I discovered as I discovered them and the different phases that I went through. So Where I'm starting out is talking about, I guess, like the immediate trauma of a breakup happening, however it is that that it happens for you. In my case, it was very, very unexpected. And we'll talk a little bit about that situation later on as well. And I use the word trauma with a lowercase t. Sometimes people feel a little bit self-conscious about using the word trauma if if they don't feel quote unquote traumatized enough necessarily. Um, In my background and the training that I'm doing for you know, getting my certification as a somatic experiencing practitioner, they kind of talk about the fact that like there's a difference between an event that happens that's very, very stressful, an event that's traumatic. And there can be a lot of different factors that go into that. But basically what distinguishes stress from trauma is nervous system overwhelm. So a stressful Mm -hmm. event is like, wow, this really taxed my nervous system. This caused a lot of distress and upset and anxiety but ultimately I was able to handle it and kind of come back down maybe by the end of the event or the end of the day or stuff like that versus something that's traumatic, which is where we go into overwhelm, where something is just like either a piece of knowledge or a piece of news or an experience is so intense 
that it just kind of overwhelms your nervous system. And your nervous system then usually has to kick into fight or flight response of some kind, you know? So in my case, it was very, very unexpected. It was very, very shocking. And I was very fortunate in the sense that like, so it happened over a Zoom call, which also sucks because this freaking pandemic, if there's any reason for me to hate Zoom more, but (laughs) um, you have to use it a lot. Yeah. Even to go on dates and big emotional talks. I know, I know. Um, I was fortunate in the sense that like after that call, I was able to just like go collapse on the couch and have Jace hold me. And I didn't, I didn't have to go into a situation where I was having to hold back my like physical and emotional responses, you know? Um, Cause for me, like in the face of nervous system overwhelm, for me, it often uh, manifests as like shaking, you know? And that's actually really common for people like to kind of get the shakes or get trembles or stuff like that. But there's a lot of social forces or situations that encourage us, no, don't shake because that looks scarier, that looks disturbing or things like that. And I think there's a case to be made that sometimes holding back these kind of responses can sometimes be damaging, maybe not necessarily in a permanent way, but, you know, your body and your nervous system kind of wants to feel those things. Um, but I also say that to folks because I don't want anyone to take that as permission to just like go apeshit on the person who just broke up with them or things like that. Right. It's more like letting the physical experience go through you than like, mm. than like kind of outwardly putting it onto other people. Does that make sense? Kind of the, the yeah. difference of like allowing an experience to happen in your body versus like putting that experience onto someone else. Is yeah. there, those are two different things. Yeah. So I feel like that would be my first piece of advice for folks if, and I mean, you can have this response whether you were the one who was doing the breaking up or you were broken up with. That applies to a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode is just, I realize that sometimes in life you know, you get a bad piece of news, then it's like, I still got to go pick up the kids or I still got to go into work or I got to pull it together to make dinner or whatever it is. Like, I totally get that. Um, But any way that you can carve out the time and space for yourself to actually feel the emotions and actually let them move through your body. I I think chances are it's not going to be as scary as we think that it's going to be because that is, I think, a really important part of the process to not just like tamp down the emotions. I know I've definitely been in situations where I've had to and it really sucks. Do you feel as though that initial physical reaction happened again and again after that initial time that you felt it or was it diminished each time or was it was it never exactly like that initial physical response that you had it was never quite like that like right after the kind of the first shock of the news and okay. i i think i i don't i don't know i can't get confirmation on this i i think that that would be the result of letting myself actually feel it hmm. and letting it actually move through it and it doesn't mean that i was just like cured instantly and never felt any pain after that i certainly felt a lot of pain a lot of upset and a lot of sadness and anger and all the feelings but i don't know i i, I just want to encourage folks to be able to find a time and place especially if you're very early on in this to like go ahead and let yourself be a little bit of a conduit to the pain. It's it's going to be worse if you're trying to bottle it up or damn it up or numb it out. Like, I don't know. I just want to encourage people to to consider doing that as part of their recovery. Yeah. And so let's get into a little bit of research about mm. how this actually works in the body yes. and in the brain. 
because what I learned about myself is <laughs> literally the next morning I woke up and the first thing I did was treat it like a multi-amory episode. And I was like, what does the research say about this? Yeah. yeah. What can science teach me? Science needs to tell me something to do to deal with all these feelings. Um, uh -huh. Meanwhile, I was like on my phone when she would go into the other room, like how to support someone in a breakup. Oh, were you yeah. actually researching that too? I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's that whole thing of like trying to remember, like, wait a minute, like what are the things that are kind of like instincts of how to help someone that are not helpful versus what are the things that actually are helpful? And, you know, with if someone's dealing with capital T trauma or lowercase t trauma of, you know, breakup or, you know, losing a job or like something like that of like, what's, what's trying to solve a problem versus what's being there and being supportive versus what's like, I should be offering some support. And so also kind of, I didn't do as much research. I mean, Dedeker was, was pretty obsessively researching this stuff for a little while at first, kind of figuring out like, what should I be doing? Um, but but also on my side, kind of trying to do some of that, like, how do I offer the best sort of amount of support without, you know, overwhelming that or without like getting in the way of her processing or without like, you know, putting my own opinions on it or whatever and kind of trying to figure out the best way to deal with it. Yeah. So first thing I came across is the fact that heartache or heartbreak, it is real pain. So there was a 2011 study where basically they had the participants looking at pictures of their ex while they also monitored their brain activity. And they found that the parts of the brain that are usually associated with physical pain lit up when they mm. were looking at pictures of their ex. Uh, there is another study out there that found that actually taking a painkiller or taking a Tylenol could help buffer against that emotional that's pain. That's fascinating. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah. Wow. Now could be the placebo effect for all I know. I didn't read the text of this study, but I did that next morning immediately take some ibuprofen and hmm. took it a few times over the next following days. Just I don't know. I was just like, I'll just throw anything at it. Like may as hmm. well, even if again, even if it's placebo effect, if it helps things feel a little bit better, then fine. Also, one small 2010 study found that under an MRI scanner, the brains of heart sick people, people who you know, have gone through something that is causing their hearts to feel awful. Uh, it can resemble the brains of those experiencing cocaine withdrawal. And the researchers theorize that this may explain why some of us feel and act a bit wild after a bad breakup. Wild's an interesting word to use. But yeah, I mean, I think whenever we go through traumatic experiences, sometimes we surprise ourselves in how we act and what we feel and what we maybe even say or do. And again, that's not, you know, that, that's not a permission to just go buck wild. But I think that if you have moments of introspection, sometimes you can realize like, wow, that that's a, a place that I haven't really gone to. And I'm assuming it's because I'm going through this really traumatic event. Yeah. And also, generally we're really bad at predicting how we're going to feel about something in the future we're just sure. super bad at that at knowing what we're going to do how we're going to act combined with i did find it helpful to have this laid out in almost like a brain chemistry perspective almost like the way we talk about nre where 
it's not like NRE is total BS and and you shouldn't feel these things, but also you should be taking it with a grain of salt. You should be recognizing the fact that like there's a chemical cocktail in your brain that's changing the way that you feel about things and think about things. And the same thing when you've lost a relationship or lost a person, that your brain is used to these particular routines, these particular patterns, this particular pattern of dopamine release related to this particular person, and then suddenly that's gone. And it totally makes sense why suddenly you're in withdrawal brain, which mm. can include obsessive thoughts or depression or not being able to sleep or not being able to eat or feeling this really intense pursuit or pull towards that other person. Like that's all normal. It's not necessarily encouraged that you feed those behaviors, but it is all normal. Um, and so for me, I know just knowing that literally from that brain chemistry perspective was helpful. Yeah. So then another thing is when it comes to the amount of time that it takes to get over a breakup, you know, we've, there's various sorts of conventional wisdom out there about like, oh, it's the length of the relationship divided in half or, or like one week for every year or one month for every year, like whatever. There's all sorts of stuff out there, but what does the research actually say? So for example, a 2011 study that was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology they found that it takes an average of 11 weeks to feel better after the loss of a romantic partner. And this, interestingly, was regardless of whether you were the one who was dumped or did the dumping. Um, and they found that those with secure parental attachments recovered a little bit faster. But hmm. that 11 weeks was kind of this average. Um, and it seems to be the average kind of regardless of the length of that relationship, from what I can tell here. Yeah, from what I read, there's different factors that can influence the grieving process taking longer, being shorter, things like that. But like, yeah, they found that this was the average. Uh, when we're recording this, I'm on like week 10 or so. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so what is really interesting that I found right away was there was a small 2000 stu 2007 study that was in the Journal of Experimental Psychology that found that people tend to mispredict how long their recovery is going to take and also how much distress they're going to feel in the future about the breakup or the heartbreak. Basically, it turns out that your feelings of heartbreak, they're going to last for a shorter amount of time than you think that they will. And they're going to be less continuously painful than you predict that they will. That definitely gave me a lot of hope right out the gate. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so then how do we actually deal with this breakup, right? Like, what do we what do we do about it? So we're gonna look a little bit at this 2018 study that was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, where they looked at three different coping strategies or recovery strategies, plus, of course, a control group. So the first of the techniques or strategies was called negative reappraisal which uh, we kind of talked about reappraisal a few episodes ago, actually. But in this particular case, negative reappraisal means making a list of negative qualities of your ex. Yeah, basically. so it's basically all the stuff that gets under your skin or that annoyed you or that you just always really disliked. Right. And then they did another one that was called the love reappraisal, which is where people were told to read and believe statements of acceptance like, it's okay to love someone I'm no longer with. Um, so instead of fighting how they feel, they were told to accept their feelings of love as being perfectly normal without judgment. So that was strategy number two. And then strategy number three was distraction, which when I think distraction, I'm like, ah, oh, so you mean like drinking heavily and playing a lot of video games and like watching movies. But in Casual this case, <laughs> yeah, whatever. In this case, the distraction was prompting them to think about their favorite food. 
which I guess is probably a healthier option than what I was thinking. <laughs> Just think about your favorite food, but don't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then they showed each of these groups a photo of their ex, and they measured the intensity of the emotion in response to the photo using electrodes placed on the posterior of the scalp. The EEG reading of the late positive potential, LPP, is a measure of not only emotion, but motivated attention or to what degree the person is captivated by the photo. In addition, the researchers measured how positive or negative the people felt and how much love they felt for their ex using a scale and questionnaire. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So basically, according to the brain scans, they did find that all three of those strategies, the negative reappraisal, the love reappraisal, and the distraction strategy, did significantly decrease people's emotional responses to the pictures of their ex, relative to the responses with the the control group, which didn't use any kind of prompts. Um, However, It was only the people who did the negative reappraisal, who did the list of negative qualities that also had a decrease in feelings of love toward their ex. But Mm. it came with a catch, which is that these people also reported being in a worse mood than when they started. So Mm. like focusing on all the negative traits helped them move on, but it was distressing in the short term. And now let me just say... I did try this strategy basically right away. I sat down and made a super long list of all the really annoying things, all the unresolved things, all the things that made me uncomfortable. And I got to say, worked to help me have some perspective on this person and the relationship also was depressing. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And now distraction, on the other hand, it made people feel better overall but didn't have any effect on how much they still loved their ex-partner. So basically, distraction, uh, here's a quote from the study, distraction is a form of avoidance which has been shown to reduce the recovery from a breakup. So that's interesting to note that while that kind of helped in the short term, didn't actually help on them getting over the breakup. Additionally, love reappraisal showed that there was no effect on either love or mood, but it still dulled the emotional response to the photo. That's interesting. So I mean, kind of that, like thinking positive, like, yeah, thoughts affirmation about yourself and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah hmm. That's that's interesting. Maybe that's the the takeaway is that that's the strategy to do if you were to do well, you know any of these, or maybe no. What do you? Well, think? maybe I I don't know. I mean, in my experience, I think my takeaway was just having any strategy at all was helpful. Like mm-hmm. having any kind of intention Especially at all in the short helps. Term. Yeah, yeah. I I found myself especially like really at the beginning when things were the most intensely painful and I felt the most just like falling apart, kind of bumping around all those strategies at once, depending on what was happening in the moment was helpful. You know, I I wanted to be intentional about not just trying to distract myself and just like numb myself out with alcohol or with like jumping into going on a bunch of dates with people or or just playing video games or whatever. But there were some moments where I was like, I need that right now. Yeah. You know, or there would be some moments where I'd have to specifically ask Jace, like, I need a distraction right now. Let's play this video game together or let's go for a walk or whatever it is. Like sometimes that was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that being kind of in the support role in this particular case also was kind of being on my toes to sort of feel out which which strategy (laughs) are we doing now, right? Uh Are we focusing on like, why you're better off. Are we focusing on like, no, let's think about how, you know, it. there were some positives to it and like, that's okay. Are we more about sympathy right now? Are we more about distraction? Kind of good time to employ the triforce of communication. Oh, yes. 
Right. Oh, yes. And I think also just kind of like being flexible and and not trying to come in with like, this is the strategy I'm going to lean into regardless of what you're trying to do. But instead kind of trying to like be here, kind of have this feeling kind of being on my toes. You know, oh, you got to keep your knees loose so you're kind of ready to <laughs> zig or zag. He was on a basketball court the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... Additionally, a 2015 study in the journal Social, Psychological, and Personality Science found that while too much wallowing after heartbreak isn't a great idea, also reflecting on a recent breakup can help speed up the healing process. So the way the study was done was they rounded up 210 young volunteers, as always, it's always young people, who had (laughs) recently experienced heartbreak and had half of them come into the lab regularly to answer questions about their breakup over the course of nine weeks. And then the other half of the people completed just two simple surveys, one at the beginning and then one at the end of the study. And the first group, really, they fared better. They answered the researchers' questions, and that really helped these people better process their breakup. And then also, quote, it helped them develop a stronger sense of who they were as single people. And then that in turn helped them feel less lonely. Yeah, so interesting background to this study. The reason why this study happened at all is because this this particular researcher was already doing a lot of studies on breakups, and she had this question of, ooh, gosh, as we're bringing people in and asking them all these questions about their heartbreak and their breakup, are we making this worse for them? Mm. Or could we be doing this better? And so that was kind of the whole purpose of this. And they found that, yeah, like it's like there's something about this kind of regular structured reflection that did seem to help them just process it and move through it better rather than the people who weren't, who weren't really prompted on that regular basis. Cool. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot more research that could be done there, too, in terms of like what kind of reflection, how often, yeah. like what is sort of the ideal balance, what what constitutes wallowing versus what's reflecting. Like, Oh, and these have really been questions area. I've been yeah. chewing on for the past 10 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I will say that, of course, when I dove headfirst into research right away, a lot of the resources are like, yeah, you like it is healthy to reflect on. Who was I in this relationship? Who do I want to be in my next relationship? What are the good things I can get from this relationship? And that's all fine and good. But in the first couple of weeks, it was just like, I can't even go there. Like, I'm too mm. close to it. Yeah. You know, it's too painful. I'm still dealing with all the emotional upheaval. I can't get the distance. I can't, like, force this kind of insight quite yet. So I wanted to reassure folks who are listening, it's okay if you're feeling a little too close to it. This kind of insight will show up later. You'll have plenty of opportunities to reflect in this way later on. And it's totally okay if it's hard for you on day two to come up with what you want to take with you from this relationship or what you learned from the experience. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go on and we're going to look at some various strategies, like some specific ways that you could go about some of these, some ways that you can think about it, as well as leaving you with tools and resources for processing heartbreak and also potentially supporting other people who are processing heartbreak. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this episode. It's really important to us that we are able to pay the people that help us make this podcast possible and that we're able to keep this coming to everyone out there for free. So if you could take a moment to listen to our sponsors, it goes a long way toward helping us to keep doing that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. So this next section I have titled, Why Does This Suck So Bad and What Can I Do About It? Um, (laughs) Why indeed. Uh, The science touched on that a little bit. We've touched on the fact that it sucks so bad because you're brain is literally processing it as actual pain and pain sucks. Um, in my particular situation, or or if you're in a situation where you've been ghosted, for instance, or maybe you've been broken up with in a really inappropriate way, as in like a really long relationship and they broke up with you via text or they just completely stonewalled you or whatever it is, you know, not only can something like this be traumatic but it also in my opinion falls under the purview of shock trauma in the Mm. sense that like this came out of nowhere and your nervous system didn't have the time to prepare for it right now especially in a situation where maybe somebody ghosts you or someone like maybe this other person has been thinking about the breakup for a long time and they've had the time to sit and reflect and think and mull it over and maybe even talk to a therapist or stuff like that like they've had more of an opportunity to prepare their nervous system for the loss and you haven't necessarily that wasn't necessarily what happened in my case but i'm just kind of speaking to folks because i think this is a common situation right where you're just like totally blindsided by a breakup and as far as like that term shock trauma i mean what is that what does that mean? I know, you know, you've studied a fair amount of trauma in your trainings that you've been doing. Like, what does that mean? And how is that different from other kinds of trauma? Well, well, often it's kind of layered on top of other kinds of trauma, right? It's not necessarily something that lives on its own. But like, for me, it's situations where there is just like, there's no preparation, right? You're blindsided by something, something happens completely. Suddenly, there was no warning or anything like that. Like, basically, they find that in like lab rats, where they're doing experiments with literal electric shocks that if an animal can predict when the pain is going to happen, so if it's like, oh yeah, when I get a pellet or something, I get shocked, or or when I touch this wall of the cage, I get shocked, it's a lot easier for the nervous system to manage it, right? Versus if you're shocking an animal at completely random intervals and it's hard to predict. And I this shows up, I think, on a human level Sometimes where people who have been abused either by a parental figure or something like that, where it's like if the pain or the abuse is really unpredictable, it can really mess up your nervous system and your ability to be calm and regulated and centered because, you know, your body's instantly like, oh, my God, how can we protect ourselves from the next thing? We don't know what to do because we don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah, I think you two sort of visibly watched shock trauma happen to me. When I got a phone call mm. that my yes. colleague had been killed in a drunk driving accident. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's very much one of those moments where your body and your brain are doing two different things at once. Your brain is trying to process, but also maybe tell yourself, you know, it was it, in this instance, it was right before a drunk Bible study was going to mm-hmm. happen. And I was like, no, I can go on. I can do this. And you, you immediately were like, 
no, don't. you're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, like having that sort of delayed response where your body and your brain kind of come together and kick into sort of more pr- potentially normal things occurring, like mm-hmm. uh, intense grief. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that that shock is very, that's a very interesting way of putting it because, yeah, sometimes like the two need to catch up to one another. And in that exact moment, if you're not prepared, uh, it can be really kind of intense. Yeah, in definitely. And, yeah. and I think the shock really sets us up for things like really obsessive thoughts, like mm. really anxious thought cycles, because it is your brain really trying to figure out, oh, my God, what happened so that we can be ready next time. Yeah. And I think this is when we start getting into not being able to stop thinking about the person or picking the relationship apart or picking particular interactions apart because your brain is like trying so hard to protect you to f- and just like to make sense of it and try to put it into a narrative. And sometimes it doesn't neatly fit into a narrative. The way that's been helpful for me to think about this is, especially in the very early days of dealing with this, was to just think about being sick and to treat mm-hmm. myself like I was actually sick. Like I'd gotten really bad food poisoning. and. It's the kind of thing where when you have food poisoning, you can sit there all day obsessing over, oh gosh, what was it that did me in? I shouldn't have had that burrito or, oh gosh, I I knew I should have thrown that bacon away or whatever. These are both um, autobiographical stories. stories, (laughs) Um, Shouldn't have had that burrito. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, and it's like you can obsess over what caused it, what caused it, what caused it, what caused it, but you still have food poisoning at the end of the Mm. day. And even if you figured it out, it's not going to fix your food poisoning in the moment. It's like in the moment, what you need is to take care of yourself, to rest, to be gentle, to drink water, and to avoid the food that made you sick in the first place because you're probably not going to want to eat it. And to me, that means avoiding like this person's social social media, media, avoiding combing over text messages or photos of them or things like that. And that is very hard to do. But... You just, I'm sorry, folks, you just, you got to do it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too, that this talk about the, the shock trauma thing is making me also think about situations where someone has, even if they haven't broken up with you, but maybe have, have gotten upset with you about something maybe that you've been doing for a long time or something that you didn't even know that you were doing that was upsetting to them. It's like my nightmare. Well, uh, it's yeah, so absolutely. surprising and shocking. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, wait a minute. I thought that that's how our relationship was going and it yeah. was okay to discuss X, Y, and Z right. thing or yeah. do mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it can run the gamut from, you know, being something like, it's like, oh, some pet peeve or annoyance that I didn't know that my partner had to like, oh, I actually was doing something harmful to this person and mm-hmm. I had no idea that I was. And yeah you know, kind of the severity of that shock trauma either way. But I think it's really worthwhile to kind of take a moment to, to, I guess, let that sink in and kind of be like wherever you are in that situation to realize like there's at least a, a, a lowercase t trauma that happened there and to kind of give yourself time to process that. And I think we often think like, oh, well, if I was in the wrong, I shouldn't, I don't deserve any kind of like recovery or care or whatever there. Um, but to realize, like, no, you do, because otherwise, like, you're not going to be able to heal and process that and and learn something from it either. So that just kind of came up in thinking about 
ways that we can have that shock trauma, even not just in a breakup. Uh, so yeah, so for me, just giving myself permission almost to feel all those emotions and just, again, treat myself like I'm sick and I'm in recovery and I need to do the things to take care of my body. And then after that, then it's, I don't know, in my experience, then it's just going through the stages of grief, right? You know, this is a loss. This is something to mourn, you know, to on a certain level, your brain doesn't know that it's any different from somebody who died. Yeah. Right. Like all mm-hmm. your brain knows is this person was there and now suddenly they're not. And and your brain doesn't really distinguish between those two things. And so it's totally normal to have all the different stages of grief come up. Um, and we'll review them just for the fans of stages of grief out there. You know them. You love them. We're talking about denial. Wait. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> is that denial? First? so they're, they don't necessarily go in order, but they, That's I think they tend dumb. to go in oh, order. Okay. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, denial. Uh, and then anger, anger, and then bargaining, depression, okay, and then acceptance, okay. Mm-hmm. And you'll often jump back and forth between them. They tend to go sort of in order, but sometimes you'll like get to a step, and then you'll jump back a few, and then you'll get back to the step and jump back a few, and then jump, and then maybe get to another step, and then jump back a few. So it's not like a a linear process, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's like that denial, like this can't be happening. Anger, being upset about it, bargaining is like, well, but what if I did this different or what if I'd done this or maybe it could work out if I did this uh, and then depression and then acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I personally, as I went through the intervening weeks, I felt like a six-sided die that was yeah. just kind of mm-hmm. randomly being tossed about every morning and it'd be like, oh, I'm on the anger side today. Okay. That's the version of me that's showing up. And then the next day, oh, I'm on the denial side today. Okay, great. That's what's showing up for me. And it just really moved through sometimes all six sides in a single day, to be totally honest. So, yeah. what was the six? Yeah, then? exactly. I'm like, wait, it's it five, five stages. stages. Of grief. Oh, uh, acceptance oof. and uber acceptance. <laughs> I never thought about that. Gosh, I've been talking to my therapist all these weeks about being a six-sided die, and she's never and she's questioned me about like, that. She's sitting there being like, this lady doesn't know how to like, count. Yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. I feel really silly. The sixth side was probably mm, just like maybe numbness. Apathy. And tired, maybe. Being a ghost, perhaps. There were some times that mm, Jace commented okay. on me being very ghostly. Yeah, Some disassociation. I don't know where disassociation would fall, but I... I Especially that's early weeks. Maybe, I think that's maybe denial is part um, of that. I don't, but, know. Yeah, it, I don't know. Could be. It was kind of something a, a a step beyond just denial into just like I'm just completely numbing out. I, I don't you know. know what? Maybe if anyone questions you on it, you kind of be like, I know that's part of the experience. It's like a six sided die with five <laughs> options on it. And like, can you wrap <laughs> your head like... around that? No, exactly. That's whoa. You know, just get real <laughs> metaphorical about it. <laughs> Or what if it's like a, actually, it's a D4. It's a four-sided die, you know, like mm, a little pyramid-shaped acceptance isn't one. on it yet. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah maybe. Okay. okay. You yeah, let us know yeah. what you think. Yeah. <laughs> let us know in your comments <laughs> and in the Patreon group. What the six-sided is. Die. <laughs> so there's this other framework and metaphor for thinking about grief that really resonated with me as well that I picked up from an Instagram account that I follow that specifically has to do with grief, usually grief related to death, but it's called the ball in the box. And so it's the idea that like 
you're this cardboard box and on the inside there's this little button that's like your grief and pain button right and then there's this big inflatable ball i think kind of like a four square ball inside the box and Mm. it's so big that like it's constantly pushing that pain button right it's so big and so overwhelming it's constantly being pushed constantly being pushed constantly being pushed and so that's like in the early stages of grief when everything is just so raw and so painful and so intense and then over time as you become more active in your healing process as time goes on it's like that ball shrinks and gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller but it's still bouncing around the inside of the box and so Mm -hmm. it's not hitting the pain button all the time but occasionally sometimes completely unexpected it will hit against that pain button and you'll still feel it and so the whole point of that metaphor i I think was really about just like not shaming people for still feeling pain later on in the process sometimes feeling very intense unexpected pain later on in the process maybe even years later just that just your ball's gotten smaller but your button's still there and sometimes stuff is going to brush up against it and that's okay so that's definitely something that i've also kind of held with me as i've been moving forward so let's talk about some tools and resources that you found in addition to the ones that you already described, uh, especially in the previous section of this. Were there like things that really were your go-to that you sort of went to over and over again during this really difficult time? Yeah, well, to be totally honest, I think it'd be impossible to compile a list of everything that I leaned on. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly didn't want to dive back into my very thick journal from the past few weeks or so to see every single question, every single prompt and every single angle that I explored. But there are definitely some recurring themes of, I want to say, where I got the most bang for my buck, as it were, in this recovery process. So I encountered this Buddhist poem several years ago. Um, That was like a translated poem of like a very, very early Buddhist nun. We're talking like, I don't know, like, 8th the fir- century Buddhist nun or something like that. Was this that. from the first free women or no? Yeah, from the yeah? first free women. Lovely. Yeah. Highly recommend that book. It's a beautiful book. I'm not going to read the poem to you, even though I'd love to. But basically the whole point of it is about like the central image of the poem is like the way that we cross the flood is slowly and just feeling for one stone at a time. And that was an image that really stuck with me is kind of this idea of like, you're, you're kind of just like figuring it out as you go along. It's kind of just about what's the next stone I can land on today in this moment, whether it's going to a therapy session or if it's just like sitting on the couch with a close friend of mine and like watching trashy TV or whatever. It is just like this kind of one stone at a time sort of recovery process. And sometimes you'll use a tool or or you'll turn to a resource and it will be great. And you'll absolutely love it. And then maybe the next time you turn to it, it's not great and it feels like it's not working. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's not working, but I think it's just kind of this like incremental healing process where sometimes even little things are still helpful for you. Um, I think the biggest thing that has helped me has just been having a really robust support network. Like, I mean, like there's really no replacement for it. I think that having the two of you, to be totally honest, like, having the two of you like so tuned into my life and caring so much about what's going on with me and the fact that I could show up and just like bring whatever was on my heart or on my mind throughout the day has been really helpful. Um, 
combined with having a really wonderful therapist, a therapist is on a platform where I can text her whenever. And so that like, if I'm in a moment of distress, I can just like write a wall of text and just have a place to put my feelings and put my emotions and then just send them was fantastic. And to be totally honest, it was kind of like I was literally turning to anybody that I trusted, (laughs) which is not necessarily a huge circle of people. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go around and tell like my sad breakup story to everybody. But it was just like realizing I actually have a really wide circle of people that I trust enough to be intimate with in that way of just being able to be honest of when they reach out and ask how I'm doing, that can be like, actually, I'm having a hard time. I just went through a breakup. Um, And and it doesn't mean that everyone had to sit there and hold my hand or even listen to the whole story or ask questions, but just being able to be seen was huge. And to a certain extent, a little bit of this made me realize my privilege in the sense that like I'm out to most of the people who care about me and love me out about being non-monogamous, that is. And so that includes people like my sister, like my mom, like my some extended family members. And so when people do reach out, I can be honest about hey, I'm going through this. And that's not always the case for other people where they're not out about being non-monogamous or they're in a context where maybe a parent or even a partner is just really not supportive of their relationship. And so they have to carry that all by themselves. And so I think that was just the biggest thing is if you're listening to this and you're not going through a breakup right now, great, congratulations. Work on having a support network, Mm -hmm. like seriously, like actually really proactively spend some time thinking about who those intimate relationships are and like fostering your friendships and your family relationships in addition to your romantic and sexual relationships. And I would say the same for preparation for being more of the support role in that case, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, I found for myself through this has kind of been this thing of like wanting to be really supportive, but also like I've got my own emotions about it. Like it's changed my life in terms of you know, our travel schedules and things like that. And I also had some attachments to this person and just like, there's a lot of things that changed for me as well, but I don't want to have Dedeker be my support for that while she's also dealing with this. And so it was similar to that thing of like, who, who do I trust? Who can I talk to about this? You know, and it's like being able to talk to Emily about it, being able to talk to some of my other friends, even if it was something just as simple as like being able to go somewhere to say, I'm having a hard time with this and I don't want to make this about me, but I also need to like express that like this is hard for me too. And so having that support network is just really helpful kind of however you're connected to this like grieving process and heartbreak process. Definitely. Um, And then, I mean, short of that, short of the times when I when I had <laughs> Emily's mom's voice in my ear being like, get it together. You can't steep, keep talking about this. Then I would just turn to my trusty old journal. As I said, it's gotten quite thick from the last few weeks. Not as thick uh, in recent days and actually even recent weeks where there's been less emotional upheaval for sure. But I mean, for probably the first five or six weeks of this is like every single day, multiple times a day, really puking all over that sucker of a journal. <laughs> I feel like when we all went to Disneyland together, which was oh, like a month gosh. ago yeah. or so. No, but that I felt like there that had been a turning point a bit. Like you were oh. moving in a direction of being yes. a little bit, uh, I, I guess, like moving on maybe in a way that you hadn't been before. You were, yeah. you were emerging out of it. 
Yeah, something that I I told my therapist very early on. First of all, I recognized very early on that I felt so lucky to be surrounded by so many good people. Like like I said at the beginning of this episode, I I felt more equipped for this breakup than I ever have for any other breakup in my mm. life, and I think it was because of the people around me. Um, well, and the work that you've done yourself too, I'm sure. Uh, well, thank you. Of course. Um, <laughs> well, but okay, but really though, but kind of because of that, it was the first time in years and especially the first time since the pandemic where I felt this sense of, oh my God, I, I physically want all my people around me. Mm. I want to invite everyone over for a sleepover. Like I want my mom and I want Emily and I want my friend Ben and I want, you know, Jace like, you know, and I want all these people next to me. And so, yeah, a couple of weeks ago when we took a trip to Disneyland where I got to be with the two of you and with my sister and her family and mm-hmm. just to have that little sense of, okay, some of the crew is together and I'm surrounded by some of these people that I love, like really, really healing and really wonderful. Like my heart was so full after that trip. Yeah. So what do you, what do y'all feel about closure? Thoughts, opinions? Ooh, boy. It's a sure thing people talk about a lot, ain't it? Oh yeah, they do, especially with breakups. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm particularly good about it. I think like time helps, but some relationships time you know, it takes a lot longer than others to to feel a sense of closure, whatever that means. And I don't know if there's ever a particular moment in time where you're like, and closure. You know, I feel like it's a it's suddenly waking up one day and realizing, wow, I'm not thinking about this person every single day and having very intense emotional feelings about them. I can kind of look back on that time in my life maybe fondly. And then that's it. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm realizing that this is something that Dedeker and I have talked about a lot over the past few months mm-hmm. too. But but basically this closure, closure, at least in the way that it's kind of talked about normally, like kind of conventionally, is is not really a thing. Like it's closure in the sense of like, oh well, if I just knew the reason, then I'd be okay. Or like, ah, oh, but if I just got to tell them how I feel about this, then then I'd be okay. Or if if I just and it's instead it's not really about like like getting some kind of completion about this. It ends up being more about like, oh I think that oh what if I just did this? What if I just did this? What if I just did that? Like, oh I just need this thing. If only I had that, which I think is also kind of how people tend to think about happiness. In general, mm-hmm. like, well, if I just had this thing, or if my life were just this way, or if I just was with this person, or if I just had this type of relationship, then I'd be happy. And, and both of those are not, not really, that's not how happiness or, or I think recovery works. Hmm. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about these two concepts in my mind. And the way I distinguish them is I label one as closure and I label the other one as completion. And basically, yeah, I think that closure, especially when it comes to relationships ending, I also think it's a bit of a myth. I I feel like closure means I need to get something from the other person so that I can feel good about the ending of this and I can feel satisfied about the ending of this. And I don't know, people sometimes think they like have a right to some kind of closure and we really don't in life, in relationships, in death and grief and whatever. Like, we don't really have a right to this. And often it's really disempowering to put yourself in a position where it's like, I need to get something from this other person. 
This yeah. other person who may feel completely differently about the relationship or about the breakup may have completely different values, maybe was directly harmful to you potentially. And so it's always felt a little backwards to me to be like, oh, I need to put it on them to like make me feel good about the ending of this. But again, we get into cocaine withdrawal brain and it all seems like it just makes sense. If I can just get a hit from this person, that's going to be the thing that's going to make it feel good, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. And so for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about completion instead, which is the idea of maybe I don't feel good about it. Maybe I don't even fully understand what happened. Maybe I don't know everything and maybe I don't feel satisfied, but I feel like I can still like it, it's come to an end. It's complete. You know, the book is closed or the chapter is ending. And it's maybe a very subtle nuance, but for me, I like putting the emphasis more back on what do I need to complete this as opposed to what do I need to get from this other person in order to have closure? And I think that's an important distinction to think about. So the way that completion tends to manifest for me is in looking at ritual in particular. And sometimes, like especially if you've been ghosted, for instance, sometimes it's like you got to create your own completion, right? So our nervous systems really like this idea of something having a beginning, middle, and an end. So I think it's just really important to find the rituals that are important to you to help that land in your body and in your heart and in your mind. My um, One of my therapists that I've been consulting with recently introduced me to this concept of taking grief to tea is what he called it. And it was kind of this idea of Cute. setting aside time for yourself, maybe once a day or once a week, where it's like, I'm going to take my grief to tea right now. So I'm going to make myself a cup of tea and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to sit with my grief during that mm. time. And then I'm going to finish my tea and then I'm going to move on with my day. And that's just kind of one example of a little ritual that I think that you can do for yourself to kind of create a little bit of a container around this. That's a little bit different from just, I'm the confusing six-sided die <laughs> that's blowing about in the wind and coming and going. Um, my personal therapist also kind of introduced this concept of building a fire ring. She talked about how like when you're camping and you want to light a fire, like the first thing you do is you create a ring you know, you have to contain it in some way. And so the idea of giving yourself a container to be able to feel your biggest feelings, whether that's crying or rage or like punching a pillow or dancing it out or screaming it out or whatever, but like creating a container for yourself to do that, whether it's I'm going to go on a camping trip, which is all about sitting with these feelings, or I'm going to set a timer for 20 minutes and kind of dance it out and just let these feelings move through. This is, um, these are just like really wonderful rituals that you can do that are kind of on the micro level. You can also look at macro level rituals for like what you want to do to honor the end of the relationship or the completion of a relationship. And I think that's very, very personal to each person. Well, we wanted to end this episode with some resources uh, from our own discussions on this topic, as well as a couple other resources. Um, there is the this X's social media episode and the rejection episode. So that was Multiamory 245 was your X's social media and then Multiamory 344, which was handling rejection. So you can go and check those out for even more ways to be able to deal with breakups better. Yeah, let me tell you, the social media episode, because we did the social media episode, mm -hmm. I think having that knowledge personally was has been what's helped me to stay motivated to completely cut off from my ex's social media and to yeah. not even go there. So super helpful. Um, I also really recommend a podcast that I've been listening to a lot called Help Me Be Me. 
in particular, her episodes 107, Kicking a Toxic Love, and 80, which is all about loving outcomes, just regarding uh, lingering feelings towards an ex, is fantastic. And then also, I discovered this book called Breakup Boot Camp by this woman, Amy Chan, which I thought was going to be just kind of like salesy and superficial. And I found that it was actually fantastic. They go into attachment style, they go into trauma, they go into all kinds of stuff. Still take it with a grain of salt. In the back half of the book, they start kind of going into this is how women brains work and this is how man brains work, mm. which I'm always a little bit skeptical of, but yeah. really good information up to that point. So we're going to go on uh, and record a bonus episode where we're going to talk about a few more, maybe less uh, less conventional <laughs> or more uh, esoteric rituals and things like that uh, for dealing with breakups. Um so stay tuned for that. That's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I know some of it is all going to be new to Emily and some of it's brand new to me. So this will be a fun discussion. Also, we would love to hear from all of you. Our weekly question on our Instagram is how do you recover from heartbreak? We're interested to see what kind of insights you have. Maybe you have some really cool rituals or techniques that we haven't heard of before. So we would love to hear those there. Also, if you want to discuss this further, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.